Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. All right. Let's jump back in to Dracula. When last we left our brave adventurers, Mina had decided to check the newspapers to um, see if she could find some new information on Count Dracula or his whereabouts. But first, a sip of this reading wine. Mm. Well, that's good. Oh, yeah. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> Dr. Seward's Diary, 30 September. Mr. Harker arrived at 9 o'clock. He had got his wife's wire just before starting. He is uncommonly clever, if one can judge from his face, and full of energy. If this journal be true, and judging by one's own wonderful experiences, it must be, he is also a man of great nerve. That going down to the vault of se- uh, that going down to the vault a second time was a remarkable piece of daring. After reading his account of it, I was prepared to meet a good specimen of manhood, but hardly the quiet, businesslike gentleman who came here today. Later. After lunch, Harker and his wife went back to their own room, and as I passed a while ago, I heard the click of the typewriter. They are hard at it. Mrs. Harker says that they are knitting together in chronological order every scrap of evidence they have. Harker has got the letters between the consignee of the boxes at Whitby and the carriers in London who took charge of them. He's now reading his wife's typescript of my diary. I wonder what they make out of it. Here it is. Strange that it never struck me that the very next house might be the Count's hiding place. Goodness knows that we had enough clues from the conduct of the patient Renfield. The bundle of letters relating to the purchase of the house were with the typescript. Oh, if we had only had them earlier, we might have saved poor Lucy. Stop. That way way madness lies. Harker has gone back and is again collating his material. He says that by dinner time they will be able to show a whole connected narrative. He thinks that in the meantime I should see Renfield, as hitherto he has been a sort of index to the coming and going of the Count. I hardly see this yet, but when I get at the dates I suppose I shall. What a good thing that Mrs. Harker put my cylinders into type. We never could have found the dates otherwise. I found Renfield sitting placidly in his room with his hands folded, smiling benignly. At the moment he seemed as sane as anyone I ever saw, I sat down and talked with him on a lot of subjects, all of which he treated naturally. He then, of his own accord, spoke of going home, a subject he has never mentioned to my knowledge during his sojourn here. 
In fact, he spoke quite confidently of getting his discharge at once. I believe that, had I not had the chat with Harker and read the letters and the dates of his outbursts, I should have been prepared to sign for him after a brief time of observation. As it is, I am darkly suspicious. All those outbreaks were in some way linked with the proximity of the Count. What then does this absolute content mean? Can it be that his instinct is satisfied as to the vampire's ultimate triumph? Stay. He is himself a zoophagist, and in his own wild ravings outside the chapel door of the deserted house, he always spoke of master. This all seems confirmation of our idea. However, after a while, I came away. My friend is just a little too sane at present to make it safe to probe him too deep with questions. He might begin to think. And then... So I came away. I mistrust these quiet moods of his, so I have given the attendant a hint to look closely after him and to have a straight waistcoat ready in case of need. Jonathan Harker's Journal 29 September, in train to London When I received Mr. Billington's courteous message that he would give me any information in his power, I thought it best to go down to Whitby and make on the spot such inquiries as I wanted. It was now my object to trace that horrid cargo of the Counts to its place in London. Later we may be able to deal with it. Billington Jr., a nice lad, met me at the station and brought me to his father's house, where they had decided that I must stay the night. They are hospitable, with true Yorkshire hospitality, give a guest everything, and leave him free to do as he likes. They all knew that I was busy, and that my stay was short, and Mr. Billington had ready in his office all the papers concerning the consignment of boxes. It gave me almost a turn to see again one of the letters which I had seen on the Count's table before I knew of his diabolical plans. Everything had been carefully thought out, and done systematically and with precision. He seemed to have been prepared for every obstacle which might be placed by accident in the way of his intentions being carried out. To use an Americanism, he had taken no chances, and the absolute accuracy with which his instructions were fulfilled was simply the logical result of his care. I saw the invoice and took note of it. Fifty cases of common earth to be used for experimental purposes. Also the copy of letter to Carter Patterson, and their reply. Of both of these I got copies. This was all the information Mr. Billington could give me, so I went down to the port and saw the coast guards, the customs officers, and the harbor master. They had all something to say of the strange entry of the ship, which is already taking its place in local tradition. But no one could add to me the simple but no one could add to the simple description fifty cases of common earth. I then saw the station master, who kindly put me in communication with the men who had actually received the boxes. Their tally was exact with the list, and they had nothing to add except that the boxes were main and mortal heavy, and that shifting them was dry work. One of them added that it was hard lines, that there wasn't any gentleman such like as yourself, squire to show some sort of appreciation of their efforts in a liquid form. Another put in a rider that the thirst then generated was such that even the time which had elapsed had not completely allayed it. Needless to add, I took care before leaving to lift, forever and adequately, this source of reproach. <laughs> I, love, I love that part. 30 September. The station master was good enough to give me a line to his old companion, the station master at King's Cross, so that when I arrived there in the morning, I was able to ask him about the arrival of the boxes. 
He, too, put me at once in communication with the proper officials, and I saw that their tally was correct with the original invoice. The opportunities of requiring an abnormal thirst had been the here limited. A noble use of them had, however, been made, and again I was compelled to deal with the result in an ex post facto manner. From thence I went on to Carter Patterson's central office, where I met with the utmost courtesy. They looked up the transaction in their daybook and letter book, and I once telephoned to their King's Cross office for more details. By good fortune, the men who did the teaming were waiting for work, and the official at once sent them over, sending also by one of them the way bill and all the papers connected with the delivery of the boxes at Carfax. Here again I found the tally agreeing exactly. The carrier's men were able to supplement the paucity of the written words with a few details. There were, I shortly found, connected almost solely with the dusty nature of the job and of the consequent thirst engendered in the operators. On my, on my affording an opportunity, through the medium of the currency of the realm, of the allaying, at a later period, this beneficial evil, one of the men remarked, That air house, Governor, is the rummiest I ever was in, blimey, but it ain't been touched since a hundred years. There was dust that thick in the place that you might have slept on it, with, <laughs> sorry, again, he, like, he's writing some dialogue and I have not read ahead to prepare for this. There was dust that thick in the place that you might have slept on it without urting of your bones, and the place was that neglected that you might have smelled old Jerusalem in it. But the old chapel, that took the kike that did. Uh, that's C-I-K-E for cake, not the racial slur. Ooh, uh, you'd think I'd be used to that from Bram Stoker by now, after all the stuff reading Layer of the White Worm on Patreon, but I guess not. Anyway, okay, back to it. <clears throat> Me and my mate, we thought we wouldn't never get out quick enough. Lore, I wouldn't take less nor a quid a moment to stay there arter dark. Having been in the house, I could well believe him. But if he knew what I know, he would, I think, have raised his terms. Of one thing, I am now satisfied that all the boxes which arrived at Whitby from Varna and the Demeter were safely deposited in the old chapel at Carfax. There should be fifty of them there, unless any have since been removed, as from Dr. Seward's, Seward's diary, I fear. I shall try to see the carter who took away the boxes from Carfax when Renfield attacked them. By following up this clue, we may learn a good deal. Later, Mina and I have worked all day, and we have put all the papers into order. Mina Harker's Journal, 30 September. I'm so glad that I hardly know how to contain myself. It is, I suppose, the reaction from the haunting fear which I have had that this terrible affair and the reopening of his old wound might act detrimentally on Jonathan. I saw him leave for Whitby with as brave a face as I could, but I was sick with apprehension. The effort has, however, done him good. He was never so resolute, never so strong, never so full of volcanic energy as at present. It is just as that dear, good Professor Van Helsing said. He is true grit, and he improves under strain that would kill a weaker nature. He came back full of life and hope and determination. We've got everything in order for tonight. I feel myself quite wild with excitement. I suppose one ought to pity anything so hunted as is the Count. That is just it. This thing is not human, not even beast. To read Dr. Seward's account of poor Lucy's death and what followed is enough to dry up the springs of pity in one's heart. Later. Lord Godalming and Mr. Morris arrived earlier than we expected. 
Dr. Seward was out on business and had taken Jonathan with him, so I had to see them. It was to me a painful meeting, for it brought back all poor dear Lucy's hopes of only a few months ago. Of course, they had heard Lucy speak of me, and it seemed that Dr. Van Helsing, too, has been quite blowing my trumpet, as Mr. Morris expressed it. Poor fellows, neither of them is aware that I know all about the proposals they made to Lucy. They did not quite know what to say or do, as they were ignorant of the amount of my knowledge, so they had to keep on neutral subjects. However, I thought the matter over and came to the conclusion that the best thing I could do would be to post them in affairs right up to date. I knew from Dr. Seward's diary that they had been at Lucy's death, her real death, and that I need not fear to betray any secret before the time. So I told them, as well as I could, that I'd read all the papers and diaries, that my husband and I, having typewritten them, had just finished putting them in order. I gave them each a copy to read in the library. When Lord Godalming got his and turned it over, it does make a pretty good pile, he said, Did you write all this, Mrs. Harker? I nodded, and he went on, I don't quite see the drift of it, but you people are all so good and kind, and have been working so earnestly and so energetically, that all I can do is to accept your ideas blindfold and try to help you. I have had one lesson already in accepting facts that should make a man humble to the last hour of his life. Besides, I know you loved my poor Lucy. Here he turned away and covered his face with his hands. I could hear the tears in his voice. Mr. Morris, with instinctive delicacy, just laid a hand for a moment on his shoulder and then walked quietly out of the room. I suppose there is something in woman's nature that makes a man free to break down before her and express his feelings on the tender or emotional side without feeling it derogatory to his manhood. For when Lord Godalming found himself alone with me, he sat down on the sofa and gave way utterly and openly. I sat down beside him and took his hand. I hope he didn't think it forward of me, and that if he ever thinks of it afterwards, he will never, he will have, he never will have such a thought. There I wrong him. I know he never will. He is too true a gentleman. I said to him, for I could see that his heart was breaking. I loved dear Lucy, and I know what she was to you, and what you were to her. She and I were like sisters, and now she is gone. Will you not let me be like a sister to you in your trouble? I know what sorrows you have had, though I cannot measure the depth of them. If sympathy and pity can help in your affliction, won't you let me be of some little service for Lucy's sake? In an instant, the poor dear fellow was overwhelmed with grief. It seemed to me that all that he had of late been suffering in silence found a vent at once. He grew quite hysterical, and raising his open hands, beat his palms together in a perfect agony of grief. He stood up and then sat down again, and the tears rained down his cheeks. I felt an infinite pity for him, and opened my arms unthinkingly. With a sob, he laid his head on my shoulder and cried like a wearied child whilst he shook with emotion. We women have something of the mother in us that makes us rise above smaller matters when the mother spirit is invoked. I felt this big sorrowing man's head resting on me, as though it were that of the baby that some day may lie on my bosom, and I stroked his hair as though he were my own child. I never thought at the time how strange it all was. After a little bit his sobs ceased, and he raised himself with an apology, though he made no disguise of his emotion. He told me that for days and nights past, weary days and sleepless nights, he had been unable to speak with anyone as a man must speak in his time of sorrow. There was no woman whose sympathy would be given to him, or with whom, owing to the terrible circumstance with which his sorrow was surrounded, he could speak freely. I know now how I suffered, he said as he dried his eyes, but I do not know even yet, and none other can ever know, 
how much your sweet sympathy has been to me today. I shall know better in time, and believe me that, though I am not ungrateful now, my gratitude will grow with my understanding. You will let me be like a brother, will you not? For all our lives? For dear Lucy's sake? For dear Lucy's sake, I said as we clasped hands. Ay, and for your own sake, he added, for if a man's esteem and gratitude are ever worth the winning, you have won mine today. If ever the future should bring to you a time when you need a man's help, believe me, you will not call in vain. God grant that no such time may ever come to you to break the sunshine of your life, but if it should ever come, promise me that you will let me know. He was so earnest and his sorrow was so fresh that I felt it would comfort him, so I said, I promise. As I came along the corridor, I saw Mr. Morris looking out of a window. He turned as he heard my footsteps. How's art? he said. Then, noticing my red eyes, he went on. Ah, I see you have been comforting him. Poor old fellow, he needs it. No one but a woman can help a man when he is in trouble of the heart. He had no one to comfort him. He bore his own trouble so bravely that my heart bled for him. I saw the manuscript in his hand, and I knew that when he read it, he would realize how much I knew. So I said to him, I wish I could comfort all who suffer from the heart. Will you let me be your friend, and will you come to me for comfort if you need it? You will know later on why I speak. He saw that I was in earnest, and stooping, took my hand and raising it to his lips, kissed it. It seemed but poor comfort to so brave and unselfish a soul, and impulsively I bent over and kissed him. The tears rose in his eyes, and there was a momentary choking in his throat. He said quite calmly, Little girl, you will never regret that true-hearted kindness so long as ever you live. Then he went into the study to his friend. Little girl. The very words he had used to Lucy. And oh, but he proved himself a friend. Okay, well, I'm going to stop there because that's the end of the chapter. There's a lot to talk about in this. Um, first up, I kind of really like that uh, the Dr. Seward is all like, I don't know, this Jonathan, he kind of looks like a wimp. Um, but he's not. I like that they like immediately kind of shoot down some uh, toxic masculinity there, even as they express it. And also, there's some really fascinating stuff going on here with like the shift in society in accord with shifts in technology. So I have this theory. It's by no means an original theory. I am probably the very last person on the planet to notice this who could have. But I, my theory is that the most interesting literature, the most interesting fiction, especially for reasons that I will spare you, uh, comes to us from times when societies are undergoing really rapid and to some degree unexpected technological change. And if you look at, you know, um, well, one of my favorite genres, the hard boiled detective genre, a lot of the best stuff from that comes from, and is sort of empowered by, also just sort of happens to coincide with things like the arrival of the automobile in American culture and the way that that fueled and empowered the rise of crime and the rise of corruption in police and uh, sort of <laughs> to employ the stereotypes of the time regarding these like rumble seats and teenagers necking in cars, um, you know, easy individualized spaces which are immediately put to use for sin quote unquote and and in that regard like 
that sort of aspect of it reminds me of the rise of the internet and a friend of mine in college who wrote a paper, the point of which was every new technology gets used for sex, basically. And then people figure out like other ways to use it. But um, that's beside the point. It's just another example of what I see in this text, which is they're talking about having a telephone. Some of these are diaries that are recorded on a Victrola using wax cylinders. She's got her fancy portable typewriter and her like triple ply carbon paper. So she's able to crank out these transcripts of the diaries really quickly and hand them around to everybody. They're talking about telegraphs, telegrams. Um, there's so much technology empowering this story. And in an, in an important way, they're setting up sort of a suggestion that like the thing that might allow the Scooby gang to be victorious is the way that they are of the modern world or the future even. And Count Dracula is at a disadvantage by being of the past. I just think that's really fascinating. I mean, like he can't even sneak into the country pretending to be a wolf on a boat without it being national news. Literally the next day when the Demeter crashes in Whitby. I just think that's an interesting thing to talk about in part because that also the technology and that easy access to information is one of the necessary elements in this story of these characters opening up to each other and forming really close emotional bonds that are very atypical for the literature of the time, very forward looking. And that's part of why I keep referring to them as the Scooby gang, because like they all have secrets. They all have things they hold close to their heart and those things all get bared. They just get totally brought out, dragged out into the light and there's nothing to do, but acknowledge them to each other. And instead of it pushing them farther apart from each other, it draws them closer together. And I just think that's really interesting. And I find that very sympathetic. I, I, I really like that aspect of the story. There are some really tired gender norms here and the whole like mother spirit and blah, blah. Now, in my opinion, these days we call that emotional labor and women get asked to do it for men all the fricking time. And it sucks to me that Mina has to do that for these people that they can't like they can literally stand around the casket and drive the stake through Lucy's heart together. And then he can like Lord God, can, you know, fall to the ground and sit there and, and lose his mind and nobody judges him for it. But when he wants to talk about his problems, then, Oh, that's unthinkable with other men. Apparently, uh, I don't know. I, another big part of this is this part of the book is a great case being made for talk therapy in the modern world. Okay. I'm done blathering now. I promise. Um, but there's a lot going on at this point in the story and I find it really fascinating and, uh, catch you next time when we'll take up chapter 18. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. <laughs>